So how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm good too. Thank you. So you are from Surat, great, right? Great. Yes, I am from Surat, uh, which is a, a state, a uh, uh, financial capital of uh, Gujarat state, uh, Gujarat, where from where Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, comes. Surat is a hub of uh, diamond uh, polishing and as well as textile industry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so so you are you are like kind of sole Indian Ocean economist who are who is educating about this school of thought in India. So first, thank you for your service, and I have been consuming your content for a while now, and it really helped me framing my opinion and about different topics. So now coming on to this episode, I want to I want to talk about various topics like democracy and free market capitalism. So before we jump in, can you please walk us through your background and how you got into Austrian economics? Oh yeah, okay. So when I was a uh, children, I was a child. I used to watch laborers working very hard under the sun, summer sun, and I used to always wonder how I can help them. So that uh, sent me looking for some subject that can help you know improve the material. You know, well-being of people. So when I was in my high school, I first time read economics, and then the moment I read that subject, I knew that I was born for economics. So from that day onwards, I decided to complete my doctorate in the, uh, in economics and become a teacher. Teacher because uh, this is a battle of ideas, because uh, we know that the world is ruled by nothing else but ideas. So I wanted to become a teacher and interact with the young minds so that I can put some kind of doubts and some kind of alternative ideas into their mind compared to the mainstream economics that they teach inside uh, schools and colleges. Uh, I came to Austrian economics because I, from the childhood, I'm very much freedom oriented. So I was looking for something that will give more and more freedom to people. So when you study economics as a major student, you start generally with Adam Smith. So I also started with Adam Smith, but then I was not very happy with him because Adam Smith will not go all the way. So he will talk about the importance of free market, but he will leave government in different kinds of sectors. So I was not really satisfied. So I went on looking for other economists. So from Adam Smith, you come down to 20th century and I started reading Milton Friedman. Uh, for your information, the mainstream economics classes, they do not talk about the Austrian school very much. Uh, only, if you take, uh, only if you take classes of history of economic thought, which I took, they talk about Hayek, but they do not talk about Mises or they do not talk about obviously Rothbard or uh, Hans Hermann Hape and other economists. They only mention Karl Menger in uh, Marginal Revolution. And that also they clubbed them with the Javons and uh, other economists, uh, Walras. So I came to know about Mises when I was taking my uh, courses on uh, history of economic thought. And uh, he will go all the way, at least more than what Milton Friedman was going. So I started reading Mises on my own. I remember at that time, I, you know, it was just uh, 1999 or 98. And internet was just being introduced in India. And I was using surfing net. And I, I frequently used to stumble onto the Mises Institute's website. 
which is the headquarters of Austrian economics, which is uh, situated in Auburn, Alabama. So I will, I started reading Mises and once you start reading Mises, your world will completely change. But then again, Mises will also not go all the way. He was a classical liberal economist. So he will also leave some scope for the government. But then from Mises, you come down to Rothbard and then uh, it, it opens your eyes completely. So when I started reading Rothbard, I was totally satisfied that yes, he's the guy who is going all the way because I believe that if freedom works in one sector, then it will also work in every other sector. If free market is very good at managing the economy, producing, let's say, tomatoes and onions and potatoes and wheat and barley and biscuits and computers and cars, then obviously it is very good at producing national defense also. There's nothing like national defense, but let's say there is national defense, that means army, navy and air force, then it will be very good at producing protection defense also, as well as internal defense also. We talk about police and it will be very good at dispensing justice also because these are the uh, three areas, police, defense, military and judiciary that uh, classically the political scientists leave up to the government. The original idea of the Leviathan as developed by Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and Jean Jacques Rousseau, it only allowed government to do this, you know, jobs, protecting life, liberty and property of people. But then as I said, if market is very good at producing other things, then it is very good at producing these things also. And the whole a fallacy of public goods, I realized that there's nothing like public goods. So then if defense is a private good, if protection, internal protection, police protection is a private good, and if judiciary is also a private, private goods in the sense it is scarce and it is rivalrous and it is, it can be, you know, people can be excluded. So for example, if, uh, if there is a war in Kashmir tomorrow, Indian army will not be able to send military forces to every you know front that will open up. So suppose if there is a war in Kashmir, suddenly another border opens up in Rajasthan or China attacks from northeast, then the military military forces, the resources are scarce. So they will have to prioritize. And because the governments, they do not have any kind of price and profit and loss system, they will not be able to prioritize a location of resources. Uh, those decisions will be based on politics, not based on need of the people. So this is how I came to Austrian economics and libertarianism. As I said, from the childhood, I was, and I'm obviously still very freedom minded person. And I believe that very strongly freedom is the solution of all the problems that we face today. So what changes you have noticed in, let's say, past 10 years or 20 years in this, uh, in this uh, school of thought since you Right. Started- so when I, Okay, so when I went to USA to complete my uh, Mises University summer school program in 2008, the financial crisis uh, was just beginning. And before the financial crisis started, before that, there was a dot-com bubble. Before the financial crisis started, Austrian economics was, I mean, nowhere. But then Austrian economists were predicting this bubble to go bust. They were predicting that subprime credit crisis will bust. People like, for example, uh, Peter Skiff, Robert Murphy, uh, these people were predicting and they knew that this is typical business 
bubble and bubble is going to get burst one day so after 2008 the austrian economics came into very much prominence particularly in the finance industry uh, you will see in finance industry many people are interested in austrian economics because it gives a very precise answer of this business cycle phenomenon which other schools of economics they cannot provide so in last 10 years uh, then uh, in america the two presidential campaigns of dr ron paul it really got people's attention especially youngsters like you uh, in america they started reading mises and roth but in happy uh, mises institute america has done a tremendous and this job for and of providing all this literature of liberty and austrian economics to people for free they have something like 70 terabyte of literature available on their website so anybody can just go and download audio lectures video lectures books and podcasts and everything and just do their own self studies so the people who are the gatekeepers of economics in universities they cannot keep the general public away from learning austrian economics you don't have to go to school you don't have to attend the econ school or business school to understand austrian economics so dr ron paul he started uh, popularizing austrian economics very much because remember he is very much connected with uh, mises institute he worked with murray rothbard and other people so he used the political platform very efficiently he used that as a bully pulpit to spread the ideas of austrian economics and libertarianism so so last 10 years austrian economics you know has come a long way most young people and many other are reading this school of thought uh, i would say this is the economics it is not a school of thought because other economics economic schools like keynesianism or monetarism or other you know other schools they are not really they don't really understand how the economy works so austrian economics is as i said privately outside the uh, official uh, universities it is flourishing very much these days yeah okay so you are also a professor at university so how students react when you you know teach them about this or teach maybe you know help them understand this thought of economics as well now i am i don't i mean I, i when i have to teach i have the syllabus course is mainstream economics but what i do is that i in the end i also discuss austrian economics although i have started since last three years three months certificate course on um, austrian economics in my department which is department of human resource development in veer narmad south gujarat university so when i first talk about austrian economics and its ideas students actually get a lot of interest in economics because remember mainstream economics is very boring uh, it is highly mathematical and it uses all kind of arcane uh, terminologies which you know common people cannot understand easily i think they have done that deliberately so that people will not really understand what politicians and economists the court economists are doing with their lives so that economics is very difficult uh, but austrian economics is very logical science uh, there are uh, very little use of graphs there is no use of mathematical equations and everything so i teach it in a very simple language so they become very much interested and many students will come and tell me that for the first time in their lives they became interested in understanding economics so yeah so and because these are young people so they are open to different kind of ideas also i mean if you 
go and discuss about all these issues with uh, adults then they have already formed their ideas yeah exactly so they are not really so they are not going to open up very quickly even if they understand intuitively that what the other person is saying is right their wasted interest will not allow them to accept those other alternative ideas but young students are not like that the reason i became a teacher is because of this only that i want to deal with the young minds i want to put the doubts in their minds so that they come to know that whatever world they are seeing is not the only alternative that we have we have alternatives we do not have to go through whatever pain that we are going through life always gives alternatives and that's what austrian economics is all about so i i discuss all these issues and i i talk about uh, how austrian economics will deal with these problems so for example if i am talking about education or i am talking about environment i tell them that how private property rights can solve the environmental problems for example of pollution or conservation of resources so they actually become very much interested uh, uh, at least 10 15% of students will get interested others are there just for the degree so they are not going to get interested into anything in any case so teaching austrian economics has been a lot of fun for me for last 15 years now as i said i have started my own 3 month certificate course in introductory austrian economics now uh, and i regularly get around 25 30 students in my batches and when they go out in the industry they talk about it so whatever little i can do i am doing sitting here in surat yeah for sure okay so you have written about history of democracy and so can you please help us understand how democracy came into existence like existence and how it transformed over last few centuries and where we are today democracies came into existence in the ancient city states of uh, greece uh, for example athens and their democracy was very very different so for example the athenian democracy was not at all what we have today they did not have universal suffrage uh, for their democracy their democracy was only for free free citizens so if you understand the greek society greek society was made of different class of people so the minority of cities for example if athens has a population of 300000 people then out of 300000 around 20000 people will be free citizens that means they are the original greeks the rulers other people are either outsiders or what they called the servant class the slave people not slave exactly but outsiders so if you are a trader in greece they will not uh, allow you to vote so only the free citizens used to vote in uh, ancient city states of greece you know athens and administration was also very very different for example they will not allow anybody to stay in power for more than one year they will keep on rotating the administrator's position when they get into the you know position they will be audited by the uh, people's assembly which will gather every year they will have to present the audit account about their finances and about their moral character and everything and also when they exit after one year of their services they will have to do the same thing again so it was very different first of all it was uh, meant only for a very small population like as i said uh, 20000 people only in athens so that you can keep an eye on your administrator so but right now look at india for example india is a country of 1.35 billion people and 
we don't know who our representatives are and what they are doing so you have one representative over i don't know crores of you know population this is not democracy democracy was not meant for all this kind of things and if you see historically most of the intellectuals will hate democracy if you read any of the intellectuals of you know fast then they will not like democracy because it is a rule of masses and rule of masses means the lowest denominator will come to rule over you i think if your uh, audience they want to understand more about the problems with democracy then i will advise them to read a very very important book of professor hans hermann hoppe democracy the god that failed and frank carsten's small version of that same book beyond democracy what democracy what problems democracy faces they can find out in this books uh, i cannot discuss everything in this podcast but that is how democracy developed and it was meant for very small population it was not at all meant for such huge countries because if it is small then we can keep an eye on our administrator so for example if i am in surat and surat has a population of 5 million which is also very big but suppose if i am in my own locality and population is only 20000 30000 then everybody knows everybody so in that case and then you will have a continuous rotation period uh nobody will stay in power for very long so then the chances of doing any kind of corruption or plotting some kind of uh, nefarious scheme becomes very difficult so that is the difference between ancient uh, democracy and then the modern democracy came into existence with the french revolution in the 18th century 1789 uh the french people revolted against the king louis 16 and uh there are many books on french revolution your audience can go and read them so after that this universal suffrage democracy started uh, one guy who is very much responsible for developing one author who is very much responsible for developing all these ideas of universal suffrage and uh democracy working for the people we the people was a romantic author jean jacques rousseau so his book social contract and other writings they were very influential in shaping up all these ideas so democracy is then it started spreading into other countries from france and we see it today in its modern form even in just let's say 60 70 years ago in america also not everybody had uh, voting rights only after the uh, civil movement started the blacks got the voting rights and the women got voting rights very late so allowing everybody to vote is a dangerous thing also because then the lowest denominator is going to rule masses are going to express their wishes and they will install a kind of a person which is of their liking and then it can you know create a lot of problems yeah for sure Okay, so what are your views around socialist and communist countries like China, who are like doing relatively well? China has opened up economically. Okay, so uh, they are using only politically they are communists. They are not economically communists. So in nineteen eighties, when uh, they had. Uh, uh, i don't remember the name of this their leader and who started implementing this liberal uh, reforms 
So they started moving in the direction of market economy, not exactly the kind of market that we talk about, hampered market, but a lot of, you know, role of private government, a private sector and everything. So China, Chinese people can, you know, Chinese economy can grow very fast because they started, you know, using the market economy. The same thing happened with India also. Uh, when we, you know, when India got independence in 1947, uh, Nehru was very much in love with the Soviet uh, socialist central planning model. So he implemented socialism in India. Although India was agriculture-based economy, he decided to go for big industrialization. And 30 years of experience proved him wrong and it was a disaster. Uh, economic growth was very low, unemployment was very high, inflation was high, inequality was high. So then in 1990, the economic problem surfaced. We all know balance of payment problem. And um, uh, Narasimha Rao government was in power with Manmohan Singh as a finance minister. So that government was forced to introduce the market reforms in India. Because remember, communism and socialism, they these ideas are... Uh, not in tune with human nature and that's why they will never work. So they experimented, it did not work and they had to make a, make a big U-turn and go to market reform. So what we are seeing in last 20-30 uh, years is little bit of taste of market and that has actually improved the standard of living of millions of Chinese and millions of uh, Indians. But then because these reforms are not going all the way, these are uh, what I would say kind of fascist reforms, not market is totally fully market, uh, free market is not allowed. It is hampered market. Government is still regulating everything. Well, this is what Mises is called interventionism. So we don't have uh, free market society. We have interventionistic society. And that is the reason why uh, these economies are now facing problems. America, uh, China, for example, also had a, has a big bubble. And that bubble with this coronavirus will burst. We do not know what will be the fate of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. I don't know for how long they will be able to remain in power because everything will end one day. So uh, any day, you know, Russia's communism was going on for 70 years. And till last moment, nobody knew that Russia can just splinter like that, the former USSR. But then it happened suddenly and... You know, overnight, USSR was no more. So tomorrow, something similar can and will happen. Tomorrow, Chinese Communist Party will splinter. Maybe we will see China also disintegrating into smaller pieces. Uh, same thing will happen. The probabilities are very high of happening with India also because India, Indian nation state is an artificial entity in any case. It was put together forcefully by Sardar Patel and Jawaharlal Nehru in '47. And uh, this diverse population cannot remain uh, with together forcefully for very long. So this is what is going on in China and India. Market reform, little bit of market taste, definitely improves the lifestyle, but it created a lot of inequalities because, and remember, these inequalities are not because of market. It is because of government favoring businesses, their you know, cronies. Uh, and that is why the inequalities are taking place. Yeah, in free market, you will never have such big firms because there is uh, there are internal calculation problems for any firm to become very big. The internal economic calculation impossibility 
will not allow any firm to become very big. So size of the firm will remain small if it is free market competitive economy. Only when government is allowing, is taking sides and there is license rights, uh, some companies can get bigger at the cost of other companies. Like what we have in India, Adani's and Ambani's and Tata's and Birla's, uh, they can become big by uh, killing the competition coming from smaller entrepreneurs. So as I said, this kind of corporatist uh, fascist system cannot go on for long. So we are, I think, seeing end of this system now uh, with this coronavirus is just an excuse. The world economies were uh, about to collapse in any case because of the you know, decades and decades of all kind of uh, shenanigans, central bank and government intervention. Yeah. Okay, so you talk about free market capitalism and an anarcho-capitalistic libertarian society. So how do you think it can play out practically. So, so as you are saying it, like everything is tearing apart as we are saying, so how it can play out like, right. I mean, no, nobody knows what is going to happen in future Vivek. So I cannot uh, point how exactly it will play out, but this is, this is, uh, this is what I am, I am kind of seeing from my experience and uh, from my studies, what will happen is, now I'm, be, I'm talking in terms of probabilities, you know, nobody can be sure of what is going to happen in future. So if something will happen, something like this will likely happen. Uh, when these nation states will disintegrate, different kind of independent private principalities will come into existence. And then we will have chance of implementing capitalism somewhere. So for example, in India, suppose if India disintegrates tomorrow, then states like Maharashtra and Gujarat, they have a big chance of going market way because these are trading states. Gujarat, for example, take a take example of my city, Surat. Surat has been a trading post for millennia now. Britishers entered India from Surat. They started their businesses in Surat. And then they later on shifted to Mumbai, which was actually a fishing town. Surat was properly a, a port where a lot of business was taking place. So in Surat and Mumbai and other such states, cities in uh, these two states, the, you know, there are a lot of business community, entrepreneurs are there. So they don't like to see a very big government. Uh, they like to see a smaller government. They like to see a lot, a lot of freedom for their work. So chances are high for these states to implement. See, when you have so many different small entities, at least you have a freedom to implement different ideas. Now, you don't have to necessarily follow the diktat of Delhi. Right now, we cannot do that. Right now, if Delhi says this, everybody will have to follow that. In China also, if the Communist Party will say this, you know what is going on in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is as free market as it can get, you know, in a modern time. But uh, because of the uh, stupidities of uh, Xi Jinping, one guy. We have we are seeing a lot of problems in Hong Kong and Taiwan also. So especially the those cities you know which are lying on the uh, ocean front, they have very long history of trading. So they are very likely to go free market. So this is how I see things playing out. At least we will have a chance of experimenting with different kind of ideas. When you have such big nation states like India or China or America 
or Russia, for example, people don't have a lot of choices. And remember, historically, freedom thrives where you know border or borders of two states are meeting. In the far margin areas, people are mostly free because the center is very powerful. The the power will be you know very much located in the center, and then it you know kind of is is you know uh, thrown outside. But in the marginal areas, power is weaker. So as many borders we have of different states, you know, it's better. So if there is competition, but you know, let's talk about political competition. Because remember, capitalism, you know, originated in, in, in Europe because there was there were a lot of political fragmentation in Europe during those medieval times. It they were, you know, those those societies were divided into thousands and thousands of independent principalities, which were ruled by local princes. And that is the reason why in Italian, you know, in Italy, for example, ancient Italy, cities like Florence and Milan and Flanders, they can become independent and and people roam. Yeah, people had people had uh, you know chance of stretching their profit motive or to its ultimate limits. And that is how capitalism started in Europe. It was because politically fragmented. So when we have political competition, small, small, small states are city states or you know private cities are you know kind of competing with each other. Then any one city has very little chance of going you know totalitarian or tyrannical. So for example, in in India, suppose Gujarat, suppose Surat is independent or Ahmedabad is independent or Mumbai is independent. So if if tomorrow the you know local uh, Surat you know government whatever. Where we have government is different from the state. So if they decide to do something stupid, and suppose we have some kind of government, some people decide to take over the city, then the businesses can easily go to Mumbai, which will be a freer place. So people can vote from their feet, which is actual voting. You know, this is how you disobeyed. Uh, the disobedience can be expressed by emigrating from one place to another. So the moment you go out of Surat, Surat people cannot do much about it. So that kind of pressure will not allow the local governors, uh, the local uh, administration to become tyrannical. So political competition is good. You know, if economic competition is good for consumers, then political you know, competition is good for citizens. You know, so we have at least some choice of going away from one tyrannical place to another that choice we don't have right now yeah exactly like like bunch of singapore's or maybe malaysia and you know right so- yeah so taiwan south korea japan singapore <laughs> malaysia kuala Lumpur. yeah so if malaysia is doing something stupid people can go to singapore if singapore exactly. is doing something stupid people can go to hong kong if hong kong is doing stupid they can go to south korea or they can go to Taiwan. But if India, Delhi is doing something stupid, we have very little chance of doing anything on our own. Yeah, for sure. So it's better to, like, it's better to distribute different states instead of having this one big country or one big state, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, I will suggest your audience to, to read a couple of books. One was written by Professor Leo. Leopold Cole. The name of the book is Breakdown of Nations. And another book was written by his uh, student. I'm sure this, this book is famous, E.F. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. So smaller families are beautiful, isn't it? I mean, government always talks about small families. 
So why not have a small city, small state, small country? Why have a country of 135 crore people? You know, isn't it that 5,000 people will be very good and 10,000 people will be very good? So it's better to have smaller countries. Remember, smaller countries are also very peaceful. They like to trade. I mean, none of these countries like Singapore or Taiwan or Hong Kong or uh, Malaysia, they attack others. They don't have big military. They don't like to you know, wage wars. Only the big powers, they wage the wars. So it will be very good for peace, world peace also, if we have smaller you know, countries, independent principalities. So basically, the goal is uh, secession and decentralization of power. That will be very good for the world. Too much of centralization of power, we can see what is going on right now. The perils of power. One guy, for example, in India, Narendra Modi, the prime minister, he can just come on television and announce that he's going to lock down 135 crore people for 40, 50, 60 days now. And nobody can do anything. Just imagine the power that this one person is having in his hands. This is absolutely uh, mind boggling. This much power must not remain in hand of one person. This is not even democracy. I mean, in democracy, you don't give power in the hands. Yeah, it's more of a dictatorship person. than a democracy. Yeah, but then it is democracy in a way that he was chosen by the people, right? So the system's failure is there. This is actually a very mature form of democracy. When democracy matures, these kind of rulers are all only going to come to power. As H.L. Mencken, the brilliant American journalist, said that when democracy is, is in its mature form, People, the common people will have their heart wishes and they will install some downright moron in White House. So yeah. I think yeah, that's what, that is what we are seeing. World over. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So right now, governments around the world earn money or I would say by, by taking death or printing money. So how you think government mod revenue model will look like in free societies uh, we, we will have very less government but still how government will earn money in that kind of scenario well why should we have less government we'll have no government for example if we have to go for that then i would like to see no no state actually government is local administration and that can be privately funded i mean we can manage our own affairs that is not a problem but if at all government is there, let's say, for example, for, let's take example, historical example of America. So a little bit of stamp duty was enough to fund the whole American government in uh, the beginning periods because the expenditure of government is very small because the government itself is very small. You don't need a lot of taxes, right? So for example, when, um, when America was founded in 1776, they had very little, I mean, they had no income tax until 1913. They had very few taxes. And because the government was only 2% or 3% of the total economy, they did not uh, need to impose any taxes. Now, today, the American government spends around 50-60% of total GDP. Indian government is doing the same thing. So, bigger the expenditure, bigger the taxes, bigger the revenue. And remember, governments are never going to tighten their belts. They always like to spend more. They never, for example, if your and my family will get into financial issues, if we go bankrupt, if our expenditures are more than our income, then what we will do is that we will cut down on our expenditure, isn't it? 
but the government will not cut down on their expenditure because today's governments are welfare warfare governments their role is not only limited to protecting life liberty and property of people so they will impose new taxes instead of cutting down and down on their own expenditures example i can give you from india recently just two days back the narendra modi government increased the excise duty on petrol and diesel by 10 and 13 rupees respectively so instead of cutting down on their expenditure reducing the size of their programs and their and dismantling the bureaus uh, you know which are absolutely useless they are just going to impose more and more taxes and ultimately that is the you know there is a natural limit to this kind of predation this is nothing but legal plunder so governments the state is a parasite and when the parasite will try to you know become bigger than the host it is going to kill the host as well as itself so this is what we are see this is why i am saying that uh, india will disintegrate because when the government will try to do everything they will not be able to do anything and they will stretch themselves beyond limits and because of that they will become financially economically weaker and that is when they become vulnerable from outside or internal collapse it they it will internally collapse and then outsiders will come and take over or do something about so right now we are on that same path i think all across the globe <clears throat> yeah exactly so as we are seeing right now as we are seeing a massive uh, amounts of new money from fed and central banks around the world so what do you make out of it so do you think uh, this money bubble this fiat currency money bubble will pop or do you think it can go on for next decades like no, it, it can go on for last 50 years it can go on for it cannot go on for on uh, forever the end is always going to there see for example if you look at the history of money then most of the monetary system uh, fiat monetary system for example currency system they will not survive for very long so the experiment is going on since 1971 when nixon cut down the gold window removed the gold exchange standard and then the whole world came on to these fiat currency paper standard so it is about uh, 70 80 years now and i think we are into the last stages as far as i can see last stages of this monetary experiment uh in future they will have to either go on back to gold silver standard or somehow anchor the fiat paper currency to gold because if they don't do that then we are going to see what mises called the crack up boom kind of situation hyperinflationary depression like what's going on in argentina and venezuela yeah what is going on in argentina and venezuela or what went into zimbabwe in 2007-8 exactly so in response to this covid-19 central banks are creating money out of thin air like anything and that is very likely to you know create hyperinflation because production has halted right now world over and on the other side they are putting money in the hands of people poor people whose bank preference is very high so they are not going to save they are going to consume their cash balance need is going to be very little so demand for money is going to crash and uh, supply has gone up so what is going to happen is the purchasing power of money uh, whatever fiat currency we are talking about will reduce and then we will see depression 
uh, and that was always coming remember virus was just an excuse so this fiat paper currency world paper currency standard is i believe in last stages i cannot give you the exact line, timeline but it is going to end one day and you have to bring down uh, a commodity money standard again something to anchor with something remember when it comes to money see for most of the goods most of the consumer goods more is better we can have more computers and we can have more apple and more oranges but money is a very unique good for which less is better because money is a common medium of exchange so it is as good as its purchasing power so i am going to accept something as money only when it is going to keep its purchasing power intact so that i can tomorrow go and use it to buy the things that i want in exchange and that will only happen when the supply of money is limited so supply of money limited is very good for money if there is too much of money then it is not good for it so it is very different type of good it is neither producer good nor consumer good it is uh, it is a medium of exchange a common medium of exchange so printing and creating this much amount of money out of thin air just doesn't really make any sense the whole keynesian idea of consume consumption driving the economy is very very nonsensical and illogical common sense will tell you that before before you consume anything you have to produce and without yeah. production consumption is simply not possible so do you think we are going back to gold standard or do you think we will use some other commodities commodities as standard as far as i can see there 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 are no other alternatives right now sound alternatives of gold and silver uh even if so for example if even if you go to bitcoin let's let's talk about yeah, bitcoin you will have to next question with something <laughs> i know uh even if you go to bitcoin you have to back it with gold so because bitcoin has i mean i know there are many people who will talk about in austrians are also into this but i don't see how bitcoin can be used as international money uh it will have to be backed by something you know something that is in your hand physical you use it day to day so you remember what money actually is now i don't know what people will choose for themselves so yeah. i am not saying that bitcoin cannot become money it see money comes into existence in market uh, no individual can decide what commodity is going to become money if somehow people tomorrow everybody decides that bitcoin is good then fine then bitcoin will become money but if they decide the history of gold and silver tells it that whenever people get the choice they will choose these two precious metals because they also have prior use and everything so or maybe we can have bitcoin we can have gold right i don't believe in currency competition because that is a that is not very good idea uh, you need to have one money so that transaction becomes easy so let's see i mean i am saying that some kind of gold standard is going to come it is the solution and silver standard also uh bitcoin uh i see less probability of that happening uh, i okay. see more probability of going back to gold so what standard. are your main reasons behind not uh, you know considering bitcoin as a sound money because i cannot hold it in my hand for example i like to see <laughs> something you know 
Uh, there are a lot of people talk you can't hold in this digital world doesn't mean it doesn't have value right i that's what i'm saying people like that i mean for i mean take for example i want to buy milk a bottle of milk every morning i you know i go down in my apartment there is a small shop which sells milk pouches which is uh, 25 rupees now in a country like india where there is no infrastructure no electricity nothing internet connection is horrible how are you going to use bitcoin i mean and remember no, after no, coronavirus the economy is from now this the i don't know i mean see i told you that i don't know people will decide i don't see the chances of that happening i do not see the yeah infrastructure in place right now okay okay so one last question before we wrap it up so do you, do you listen okay. to podcast uh huh okay so what is what is your which what about your, that which one is your best podcast fine i will advise people to uh, listen to this two people's podcast most the one guy first of all my teacher former teacher uh, thomas woods junior tom woods his podcasts are very good people can listen to you know people can listen to peter skips post podcast also they can listen to the podcast of uh, robert murphy bob murphy uh, so these are some of the people and obviously i listen to my friend jayant bandari uh, every now and then i heard him on if you podcast yes i know that if you if people want to understand what is going on in india especially and obviously all over the world also he is the one person who has lot of insight and a uh, lot of ground reality he understands because he moves around a lot so uh, people can listen to jayant bandari also thomas woods tom woods junior and all lurockwell.com sometimes sometimes they also come out with the podcast of course the mises institute america yeah and my own institute if they want to know what is yeah, going Mrs. on in india mises india institute yeah. Okay, so you mentioned Peter Schiff. So it's funny, but a lot of Indian Bitcoiners think you are Peter Schiff of India. So Peter Schiff was also okay. against Bitcoin. He think that for a money to work, Vivek, to Vivek, I am not against. I am not against. <laughs> no, I'm not Bitcoin, saying against. Okay? I, I mean, yeah, you know what I mean. I don't know. I see. I am not the one to decide which which commodity or which good will become money. Yeah, yeah, I am sure. not even to decide it. I have nothing against Bitcoin at all. I mean, if Bitcoin is being used to challenge the power, then fine. If Bitcoin people like and if they want to use it, fine. I don't, I don't have any problem because money evolves in the market, and I am no one to tell people what they should use that money as. I personally like gold and silver. That is what I am saying. Okay, perfect. Okay, so can you please let people know where they can find you? Yeah, uh, people can uh, read my articles and listen to my work, uh, my interviews and everything on Mises India Institute's website, which is misesindia dot in. That is where I do all of my work. That is my institute. I run different kind of workshops here in India. Yeah, can you please tell so us if your listeners the they want to we are running? Yeah, so we are running three workshops right now. Now in Surat, I we are planning to go to Mumbai pretty soon, and then we we are planning to go to other cities of India also. As I come in contact with people like you, 
so i we run three workshop one is what is called economics for everyone so that is a basic introduction to sound economic analysis we use henry hazlitt's book economics in one lesson as a textbook for that workshop it is one day workshop another workshop that uh, we are going to conduct on 7th june hopefully the lockdown will be over and we will be able to do it uh, that is libertarianism 101 so that introduces uh, people to the ideas of libertarianism what liberty actually means that uh, workshop is based on walter block's books uh, defending the undefendable and then the third workshop we conduct in local schools and colleges and universities is money and banking so we discuss uh, what banking is and what money is basically we use the books of murray rothbard what government has done to money and the mystery of banking in that workshop we are also planning a week long mises university kind of program in india uh, mises boot camp so this three month certificate course that i am running in my department i am planning to squeeze that into a week long program five day long program and i will cover the introductory austrian economics into that particular program we are planning to launch that in this year but after this lockdown i am not sure but most probably next year we will launch that even this year we are likely to do that in uh, diwali vacation time but i will people will come to know about that on my you know institute's website so these are some of the workshops that we already do and we are planning as i said we are planning to go to mumbai now pretty soon once this lockdown is over and uh, from there we will start to you know go into other cities also okay perfect so anyone in india please uh, go join these workshops uh, i have been following dr madhusudan from very long time and his content is really good on his website too so visit his website mrs india and do join his workshop if you are in india and thank you dr madhusudan for coming on thanks for your time thank you vivek for inviting me and giving me chance to discuss all these ideas thank you very much thank you bye bye bye